Hey guys, welcome back. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today I have what I think is a really interesting and fun one with none other than my big brother, Jason Bowman. Jason is a meditator, so we spend the bulk of our conversation talking about meditation practice. I thought it would be interesting and relevant based on the fact that meditation has really become a buzzword, something that's been really popular and prominent in sport and business and healthy lifestyle. And Jason is somebody with a ton of experience, to say the least. Jason has really devoted the last 10 years of his life to Vipassana meditation retreats. And for those who don't know, of course, we sort of cover this in the podcast, but Vipassana retreats are typically 10 days long. They are completely silent. You're not allowed to read. You're not allowed to write. You're not allowed to exercise. You're not even allowed to really make eye contact with the other individuals who are on retreat with you. It's really a tool in which you're able to go deep, deep inside, much in the same way that ultra running is a way in which we go deep within ourselves to learn a lot more. And Jason and I have always sort of laughed about the parallel paths that we've taken and the the sort of interesting and similar trajectories we've been on over the last 10 years because we sort of found our life's purpose around the same time, right? For me, it was ultra running, obviously. And for Jason, again, it was spiritual life and meditation specifically. So we talk a lot about the practical application of meditation in your life. We talk about the Vipassana practice, what it entails, how he prepares. We talk about identity stuff, things that I've been dealing with this year that I've learned a lot about and how meditation has helped to shape Jason's relationship with himself and how he sees himself and presents himself in the world. We also talk about some weird stuff like the use of intoxicants, alcohol, cannabis, psychedelics, things like that, and get Jason's take on how that impacts and potentially interferes with our internal life. And more than anything, we just kind of talk about life and we talk about our respective pursuits, drawing interesting comparisons. Jason is incredibly well-smoking. He's just a very intelligent person. And even though we're brothers, it's rare that we get an opportunity to sit across from one another and go deep and just share an honest long form conversation. So it was a real privilege to have him come visit us here in Portland and just to have the opportunity to do that as two human beings and brothers. And I think you'll find a lot of interesting tidbits in here, things that might inspire you to potentially develop your own meditation practice or inspire you to recommit to meditation practice after forgetting about it, as I often do. Um, I know I certainly was inspired by the conversation and uh, just really enjoyed having an opportunity to speak with my brother. I hope you guys really enjoy this. Without further ado, my big brother, Jason Bowman. Jason Bowman. Yeah. Welcome to Portland, Oregon. Woo! What a treat it is to have you here in our home with us. Yeah. Sharing a, a weekend away. It's an honor. Yeah. yeah. And as the um, you know, president of your fan club, <laughs> it's especially great yeah. to be here. The feeling is mutual. Um Jason, you are my brother, my older brother. 
and uh, my idol in many ways in life. And it's uh, fun to be able to sit down and have a conversation with you. And I think just to get things started, it'd be relevant to just share a little bit about our brotherhood with the listeners. And um, for those listening, Jason and I are only separated by 14 months, so very close uh, in terms of our birth dates. And so we were children and adolescents and teenagers all at the same time. We hit our growth spurts at the same time. We experimented in life at about the same time. Of course, you being the uh, bad influence in most of those situations. I was pretty good at spurring experimentation. It was really great. But most importantly, at least, and most recently, I guess, um, as we've grown into adulthood, we sort of found these very powerful sort of um, things to that have provided a lot of purpose for us in our lives and things that have given us a lot of motivation and satisfaction and also a lot of suffering. Mm -hmm. For me, that is uh, running, ultra running uh, and athletics. For you, it's been meditation and sitting still, (laughs) two very opposite things. And as brothers, you know, you were always the artist and the intellectual in our family. I was always the athlete in our family, but we always sort of shared, I think, a similar energy and a similar philosophy. And our discussion today, I want to revolve around that. Yeah. And um, you used the term yesterday talking about the philosophy of endurance. So to kick things off, did I miss anything from our childhood? Is there any context <laughs> that you want to provide for, for the audience? No, before we I think that in? was good. But yeah, it's certainly interesting that we both came to some sort of uh, existential desperation to push ourselves to do uh, things that hopefully reveal some sort of truth, however you know short-lived that truth is. It's, it's extremely true. And uh, I think something that... <sighs> everybody is sort of like kind of searching for and yearning for in life is finding something that really does provide them that glimpse as short-lived as it may be. And we've seemed to have both found it in our own ways. And, um, you know, obviously things are always changing and evolving, um, as we'll talk about here. But, you know, I want to talk mostly about meditation because it's such a in vogue thing, both in sport and in sort of like healthy lifestyle now. Yeah. And you sort of found it at a relatively early point in your life. It was probably about 10 years ago when we both sort of launched on this rocket ship of life evolution on parallel paths where I started running ultras and you started doing these multi-day sits. So can you just give us a little bit of context about what motivated you to get into meditation at the time? And then specifically, what motivated you to start doing the long retreats? Yeah, I remember I was uh, I was in India in 2008, um, which of course that connotes the fact that I was already looking for something. And I'm pretty sure I did have dreadlocks at that time just to <laughs> paint an evocative picture. But I just met up with this crazy Australian dude um, who I became fast friends with. And he had just 
finished doing this 10 day silent meditation retreat and he just wouldn't stop talking about it. And I was with him for, I don't know, maybe a couple weeks. And he was all day, every day, just talking about how important and how profound and how I had to do it. And it made an impression on me and um, it didn't uh, then, you know, blossom and for another two years. And I finally just kind of pulled the trigger and decided to go do it. But um, yeah, there's, I don't know that I would say I was looking for anything in particular. Um, I would have considered myself to be like a casual meditator before that point. But when you go inject yourself in the 10 days of sitting all day, every day in silence, you quickly learn that your casual meditation has done, you know, essentially nothing to prepare you for the experience. Well, yeah, I think there's a lot of value in jumping into the deep end too. And, you know, I think, again, it's similar to my experience too, because I was never a runner, right? right? Like I've always been an athlete, but I was never really a runner. And when I first signed up for my first ultra, I was very much a casual runner in the same way that you were a casual meditator mm -hmm. when you first signed up for that initial Vipassana experience. So... I think that's the first time we've used the word Vipassana. Mm -hmm. So, and that's, I think, going to be the most important theme of our conversation. Can you give us a, like a definition of Vipassana retreat and, and what the, the basics of it are? Well, yeah, um, I guess first important to mention that there's different uh, types of Vipassana as a practice and the word is used in different ways. There's Tibetan Vipassana and there's Thai Vipassana and there's Burmese Vipassana. Um, generally, it um, is translated to mean like the art of living or clear seeing. And the lineage that I have found myself um, a part of, I guess you could say, is the Burmese kind. And that is uh, a worldwide community led by a guy who's no longer around named Goenka, who brought the teachings to centers all over the place in a way that was um, replicable in the sense that all the instructions are done in the exact same way and the timetable and the entire experience is exactly the same no matter where you do it and the instructions don't vary at all. Um, so when you hear someone say Vipassana, that's usually what's being referenced because of the prevalence. There's hundreds of centers worldwide and um, Goenka was a hero in, in offering what he did. And so the retreat itself, you said there's a number of these sort of centers where people can go and practice Vipassana. Right. So it's what does a, it mean to practice it's Vipassana? It's a 10-day course and it happens um, incrementally. So pretty much every day, well, the first time you go every day, there's a new part of the technique that's added. Um, so you need 10 days to learn it. But, you know, perhaps interesting to just note right out of the, out of the gate is um, it's totally intense and it's like boot camp for learning meditation. It is not comfortable and it's you are left with nothing to do but practice. Uh, you're, there's no reading or writing, uh, no physical exercise, no yoga, no communication of any kind with the outside world or with anybody there. You're not allowed to make eye contact. You're not even really supposed to like hold the door open for somebody. So you're left literally on your own. You're with other people in this environment, but it's designed in such a way that you have no escapes. And 
it's very beneficial to do it that way because the practice then becomes your only priority and you can give yourself to it completely. But it doesn't take very long to figure out that not being able to read or write or talk or do anything other than sit um, creates a lot of agitation, to say the least. <laughs> I'm sure, particularly in today's day and age where rest is uh, always at a premium and it always seems as if there's so many different ways uh, to devote our energy. And if we allow ourselves the opportunity to rest that we're potentially missing out on some other opportunity or not doing the work that we feel like we need to in order to be whole and complete human beings. Right. You, you said that it's like a totally committing experience and sort of described it and um, in a couple different ways. And our mutual friend, my best bud growing up, mm -hmm. who you uh, in, encouraged successfully to go on one of these retreats with our dear friend, An Andy LaSavage, described it to me as brain surgery. Yeah. Does that resonate? With yeah, you? that it's actually, that is a description that's used in the instruction okay. actually. And it's actually one of the ways that they kind of help to convince you to not leave in the middle of the experience, which mm. I've done it now 10 times. And every single time I've done it, there's been days where I wanted to leave. And especially the first time I wanted to leave every single day. Mm. But it is, it's, it is certainly brain surgery. Um, and it's hard to really describe how, I suppose. But one of the ways that it works is by cutting deeply into the subconscious mind um, in a way that it's not in any way based in knowledge. And an interesting thing, of course, is, you know, as I've found in my life, knowledge does not transform my conduct in any way. Mm -hmm. I can understand things to be true intellectually that I could never and can never implement in my relationships or in my day-to-day -day life. Mm -hmm. But the, the aspect of brain surgery is especially interesting because it gets past the intellect and it forces you to swallow things, um, to understand things in a much more, uh, you know, applicable way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just to kind of go through a couple of more basics before we kind of talk about more um, focused and big picture things. To the listeners who are not as familiar with Vipassana and meditation in general, can you walk us through like what a day looks like yeah, in one of these um, retreats? So yeah, like I said, the days are exactly the same every time I go. The day, the schedule is the same. And if I was to do a retreat here, it would be the same as if I did a retreat in India or if I did a retreat in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, the morning bell is at four. Practice starts at 4.30. There's a sitting period then from 4.30 to 6.30. Um, two hours is a long time yeah. to sit still. <laughs> Five minutes is a very long time to sit still. And I remember the first time I did it, it, it was immediately like, oh, shit. Yeah, I'm in for it. I'm in for yeah. it. Um, then at 6.30, there's a breakfast break, and that goes until 8 a.m., so you have an hour and a half to eat. You can stretch your legs walking around or lie down or shower. That's it. Mm. Then there's a practice period from eight 
a.m. to 11 a.m. So that's another three hours. There's a, about a five minute break in there. Um, but the rest is all seated on the floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's a two hour break from 11 to one and that's lunch. And again, you can walk uh, or rest or bathe during that time. Um, sometimes I'll like rinse a t-shirt if I'm especially bored. <laughs> Um, and then the afternoon period goes from one until five. So there's another four hour period. There's two breaks in there that are about five or 10 minutes long. Five o'clock is tea time. You're allowed to have a cup of tea. Um, again, walk around six o'clock to seven o'clock. There's a sitting period. And then every night at seven o'clock, there's a discourse, Mm-hmm. Um, which is really the shining light at the end of say, the day. Is that something that you just like totally look forward to? It, it is in the the first few times, yeah. So it's done on video. So they turn on these TVs uh, and everyone sits so you there. You have a little stimulation, but you're still, you know, seated, seated, cross-legged on mm-hmm. the floor, and you're still like working hard to just do mm-hmm. that because it's such a foreign thing for most of us to mm-hmm. do that. But now, you know, and I've been influenced over many years because they put the experienced guys up front. Mm. And so you've noticed over the years as you get closer and closer to the front that everyone in the front is, in fact, not watching the discourse. They're still practicing Mm. and just statuesque and upright and completely still throughout the discourse. And unfortunately, now I'm one of those guys. So I have to set the example (laughs) for the people behind me because I had such great examples set for me. Um, So... It is so then that goes until 8 p.m. or 8:30, and then whatever time is left after the discourse till nine is all uh, sitting in new instruction. So 4:30 in the morning to nine at night, with those three breaks, everything else is sitting still. Wow. So you say sitting still, and you also just mentioned the fact of how physically difficult it is. You also mentioned the temptation to quit. And obviously the parallels are totally obvious when it comes to ultra running as well and that it's so physically demanding and there's always this temptation to quit. Yeah. And because of that, we practice, we train, Mm -hmm. right? To get prepared for the situation where we're confronted with those demons or when we have to deal with the pain and adversity of what we've chosen to put ourselves through because we know it's going to be valuable. But it doesn't take away, knowing the value and it doesn't take away the need to train for it, Mm -hmm. right? And so for me, seeing what you do and comparing it to what I do, I see that preparation thing as being something that's so critical and something Mm -hmm. that I think we've both learned how to do better in our respective crafts. Me working with a coach after a few years of doing it on my own, you jumping into the deep end, uh, you know, learning through experience and then ultimately kind of um, taking on this veteran role within your community as well. And obviously doing your practice outside of 
the retreat experience. Can you kind of give us a little bit of a glimpse inside your preparation yeah, yeah. before retreat? Well, let me first be clear that I'm no veteran. I'm very much in kindergarten for sure <laughs> yeah. and will be for my entire life. Yeah. But yeah, there. Uh, I think to compare and to contrast, I think contrastingly, it is no doubt the hardest thing I've ever done and is every time the hardest thing I do, but it's not something that requires for people a skill set that they don't already have. Whereas mm. if I was to try to run a hundred miles, I would perish and I could not do it. <laughs> Anybody can do this without preparation. Um, and I have a few times entered without preparation and it has been certainly harder but I think one of the, the pitfalls in talking about this type of practice in myself is that it's easy to succumb to hyperbole. Mm -hmm. um, and what I don't want your listeners to hear is, oh, my God, this is unapproachable. I could never do this uh -huh. because uh -huh. I could never run 100 miles and anyone can do this and you don't have to train. Now, more to your question specifically for me now, um, what I've noticed is the and maybe this will sound a little bit weird, but what I've noticed is the most important area of effort for preparation is being honest with myself about if I have any like legitimate regrets that need to be atoned for mm. in, in relationally. Mm. Um, because that's oftentimes the thing that leads to the most anguish in that uh, world is regret yeah being and confronted because you can't hide as you say you're you, absolutely you have no distractions from sitting with yourself mm. and a big part of sitting with yourself is sitting with your shortcomings and you certainly sit with the ways that you feel you have been wronged by others mm. um, but weirdly or maybe not weirdly it's not nearly as difficult as sitting with the things that you know you have done wrong. Mm. So for me, that's the number one thing that I keep in mind, like even two months before going into a retreat is like, okay, like have any hard conversations that need to be had with somebody, do those before, because if I don't, then I will stew mm. hard and it creates incredible suffering really? to wow. do that, which is another, it's a beautiful way to learn how important it is to have harmonious relationships because when you put yourself in that, world you see the degree to which they wear on you mm. when they're not harmonious physically wow. um and then also you know i do get myself into shape so to speak like that's I, what i was getting at yeah i, I figured as much <laughs> i uh i practice yoga more strictly than i usually do i also will sit it probably at least two hours a day for a while before i go which i should be doing every day anyway and sometimes do. Um, I also start to just clean out in terms of intoxicants mm -hmm. and caffeine. Mm -hmm. um, I start waking up earlier and going to bed earlier. All that kind of stuff is, is quite helpful. I want to talk about the intoxicant thing a little <laughs> bit later because uh, I think it's an interesting thing for us to discuss as brothers who've been through a lot together. But yeah. yeah. Um, when we put these things on our calendars, right? Like me penciling in a hundred mile race, three, four, five, six months out in the future, you signing up for a retreat. There's obvious 
in excitement for what's ahead, right? But you've done 10 retreats now. I've done 10 100 milers oh, wow. again in That's our, wild. the parallel of our experience. <laughs> and when we have that level of experience, even though, as you say, we're still kindergartners in life, learning all the time, we do understand what we're signing up for, right? Yeah. And we know how hard it is. And, you know, for me, I've always been motivated by sport and competition, and it's sort of all how I've always identified. And so, but like, you have to balance your excitement with your understanding mm -hmm. that it's going to be incredibly difficult. Is there, like, how, how do you cultivate that prior to your uh, retreats? Do, is, does that resonate with you at all of like yeah. minimizing the dread and cultivating the, the motivation? For me, that's actually ch changed quite a bit over the years. Now, I don't, I don't really get the dread anymore at all. Honestly, I get just unadulterated excitement mm -hmm. um, because I know what it's like to come back. Um, and I know how clear the world looks and I see how permeable I am to things and how little debris there is between me and my experience that I just look forward to that so much. Mm. Um, it's like, you know, I, I yearn for the feeling of the practice. Mm. And after a year of everything kind of stacking up and difficulties and Oh, you know, celebrations, everything just kind of piles this gunk onto the mind. And it's really a wonderful thing to know that I can just go clean the slate. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. And I mean, what are we at the end of January right now as we're recording this? I just got back one month ago mm -hmm. and I'm still just lit up from it. Um, and so I, that's what I know. And, mm -hmm. it, and I know that it's going to be hard, but I've also gotten much better at dealing with the vicissitudes of the experience to the degree where when I'm spun out in the practice, I can actually recognize that I'm mm -hmm. spun out and be like, Oh, okay, bro. Like create a little distance. You're spun right? out sitting on the floor. This yeah. is weird. Like you're going to be okay. <laughs> Keep trying. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. I mean, again, it's so similar, right? Because you experience the same thing on the far side of a hundred mile race right. too, you know, like you are a completely different person and per particularly when it goes well, right. And you've sort of like achieved your goal. You are just like high on life mm -hmm. and it's a satisfaction and a feeling of achievement that I think is only, you know, understandable by people who intentionally put themselves through things like ultramarathons or Vipassana retreats. Anyway, moving on, I, I think that whole preparation thing is, is really interesting and something that, you know, we could talk about a lot more, but getting into more of like the meat of the practice mm -hmm. and the practical like benefits that you feel like you've seen as part of your commitment to this lifestyle. I want to first talk about identity stuff, mm. because for me, th this past year, as you know, has been the hardest year of my life in yeah. so many different ways. And I feel like a big part of my struggles were a result of 
my reality as being an injured person who's incapable of doing what I love, right. being at odds with how I've always seen myself, you know, and sport has always been how I've always seen myself. And it's always that identity has always served me well mm -hmm. until this year when I finally, for the first time, was unable to really compete at the level that I want to. And it wasn't until I sort of like recognized this, you know, eight months into my <laughs> depression <laughs> that I started being able to see things more clearly, as, as you say, um, and, and recognizing the baggage that I was carrying with this identity mm -hmm. and helping myself to decouple from it. Yeah. But, you know, for you, I think it might be similar, right? Like, is there part of you who like wants to be seen as a meditator in the same way that I want to be seen as an athlete? And how do you like deal with that? Like, I'm sure that's something that comes up in the practice, but what is the, how has the practice sort of changed your relationship with yourself and your identity? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really ripe territory in, in the meditation realm because using meditation as an identity is perversely oxymoronic. That's what I was thinking. Because the practice is used to dismantle the ornaments that you hang on yourself to be seen as something or someone. Right. And it is literally meant to undo the creation of identity and to celebrate the fluidity of existence and to create an identity is to try to nail something down with permanence. So in the, in the ultimate sense, if you catch yourself doing that, you have to be very honest with yourself and observe the process of that. Um, but of course, you know, the, I think the pitfall, this, what we're kind of scratching the surface at here is the pitfall of modern spirituality. Mm. And it's, it's treating meditation as um, something that you can wear on a t-shirt mm -hmm. and burning incense because you're supposed to burn incense if you meditate or like chanting to Hindu gods because that's what yoga people are supposed to do. Mm. And it's uh, in large part mistaking the map as the territory and what is a good indication of advancement in a meditation practice is a lack of necessity to define oneself for others. It's mm -hmm. so interesting. Yeah, just that's sort of why I asked the question is because you being who you are, you know, as a committed uh, meditator and somebody who has really made this a focus of your life and also, you know, having a long history in yoga and, you know, just sort of like being who you are online for people who follow you, where you provide a lot of interesting and thought provoking and really well, uh, well articulated uh, kind of thoughts about life and the nature of existence. Like, I feel like that's part of this identity of who, who you are mm -hmm. in the same way that me, you know, running professionally has sort of become who I am. And with 
this whole practice being about sort of like tearing those things down. Right. I, I just imagine it, it could it could exist in conflict when you're sitting there. The, the thing that's, um, you know, authenticity is such a god awful <laughs> word. But this is the this is essentially the greatest curse of humanity or of of the ability to be self-aware is that we question what to do and why we're doing it and whether we should do it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I can't escape like a cliche here, but like the tree does not ask itself why it grows leaves. Uh Right. uh And the goal of this practice is to actually get yourself into a place where you're existing in a way that is empty of necessity. Mm. And you do things not because other people are going to be seeing them, nor do you do things because you're going to get anything out of them. Mm -hmm. You just do them because that's who you are. And you do them in a manner that is not dissimilar to the way that a tree grows leaves. Mm -hmm. That's, it's beautiful, you know, and that's how I've sort of dealt with my issues um, here in the last few months is I've sort of gained a little bit of perspective and I'm finally starting to feel like I'm coming out of it is, you know, I love sport because it's who I am, right? Like I love it because it's given me so much and because I actually enjoy it. Right. Not because people follow me on Instagram or because like I've got some belt buckles in a drawer somewhere, you know? (laughs) And it's it's perfect because of like that, you know, the tree analogy is like it's who I've always been. It's what I love to do. Who knows why? But, you know, get deriving all of my self-worth from the the belt buckles (laughs) rather than from the practice itself, I think is, um, yeah, just been a really important thing for me to kind of come to terms with here in the last few months. And it sort of leads into what I want to talk about next was, which is this concept in Vipassana of beginning again. Mm. Can you explain begin again? Well, this is where you get at the heart of, you know, the philosophy of endurance, so to speak, because there is no endurance without the skill of beginning again. Um, But, you know, maybe just to zoom out in a sense, there's, um, I guess I would say like the greatest software flaw in human beings is this fallacy of the assumption that you can arrive at something. Um, And whether it's in relationships or jobs or in one's level of happiness and contentment, we have this deeply rooted flaw of assuming that we can come to some solid place where everything is and will be great and not change. And and meditation or any endurance pursuit, I think, is the means by which we slowly come to reprogram that software flaw to learn that there is and never will be arriving at anything. And if you can decouple yourself from the addiction to that feeling of permanence, then you're going to be much more fun to be around Mm -hmm. with yourself and to others. And of course that's, has its own perversity wrapped up in it because then like even in this, even like right now and having this conversation, it's like I'm trying to nail down linguistically how impermanence is the thing that you should recognize permanently. (laughs) You have to understand, you know, like if you can finally understand this, you'll be fine. And even in that that endeavor, it's like you can't even understand impermanence permanently, Mm -hmm. which it's interesting to just remember that too. But in terms of the practice, 
um, there's a sense of, as I am have no doubt happens the same when you run, that you have to break things down into manageable chunks of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and when that happens, you notice the truth of the old um, AA platitude, which is that I learned from the greatest American novel, Infinite Jest, the platitude that is, no moment is in itself unendurable. Mm which means it's never what's currently happening that makes you want to quit. It's the understanding that there is more of that to come Mm. that makes you want to quit. And if you can get yourself out of that mindset for even seconds at a time, then what's currently happening is never that bad. And I mean, I I like to ride my bike up mountains and I know what it's like to want to quit because Mm -hmm. it's hard and you have a long way to go, but it's never the current pedal stroke that makes you want to quit. It's looking up and seeing that there's still 2000 more feet of mountain to get up that makes you want to quit. So if you're taking too big chunks of time as your measuring stick, um, then you suffer. But if you can break things down into what's happening now, then it's just sensation and sensation changes and you can just observe it change with, uh, you know, hopefully a a glimmer of composure. The, you know, one of the things that I've noticed about that in terms of biking, in terms of sitting, but also in terms of just like, you know, the endurance of sitting through a dinner that you don't want to sit through Mm -hmm. or doing anything that elicits a sense of like, you have to kind of grit your teeth and get through is oftentimes, most of the time, all the time, when that thing that I want to be done is over, it, in retrospect, doesn't seem as bad as it was. And what does seem worse is how shitty my attitude was Mm -hmm. in relationship to the thing. And that has led me to understand very clearly that it's never the sensation that comes with you in the difficulty it is the attitude that you create towards the sensation that comes with you Mm. and if you can remember that again in terms of like reprogramming this software flaw if you can remember that the sensation will be a memory in a matter of seconds or minutes or hours or days um, then you can get a little bit more of a sense of humor and interfacing with the sensation so that when the sensation ends what's left is the sense of humor rather than the petulance. Mm. It's beautifully said. And the again, the parallel between sport and, you know, what you're describing is so obvious to people who are listening. Um, can you tie it back to the concept of beginning again? Like, what does that mean in Vipassana, begin again? Um... Like, isn't it a specific thing that's part of the practice? Yeah. So uh, it's hard to say without like giving meditation instruction, but like for the first three days of a retreat, you do nothing but observe the touch of the breath at the tip of your nose. Uh, And that's the mechanism by which you sharpen your mind. Now, this is what I'm getting at. I like, don't, practically, when you, what does that mean? When you try to observe the sensation of your breath at the tip of your nose, if you're really lucky, if you're especially sharp of mind in a moment, you might get three breaths of continuous attention uninterrupted by the torrent of cognition. Um, so I guess what we could say is there's these kind of 
two simultaneous practices and truths. The first is observe your breath at your nose and don't get distracted. And that's what we're working towards. The mm -hmm. second is you're gonna get distracted a million times. Mm -hmm. And every time you do, you have to begin again. Okay. And the, the success of the practice isn't, perhaps we could say, how long you can stay at the nose uninterrupted, but with how much composure you can begin again without a sense of defeat. That's what I was getting at. Beautiful. <laughs> it's, it's beautiful. So in this vein, I want to read to you an email that you sent me in 2011. Oh, God. Just before the Leadville 100. This I probably had dreadlocks at the time. You had dreadlocks at the time. <laughs> but I think it's a beautiful thing, and I think people will appreciate it. Oh, and dear God. It was in reaction to, I think, me vocalizing some fear or lack of confidence in myself before the 2011 Leadville 100. Mm -hmm. And what you wrote to me was, expectation leads to disappointment. Just run your race. Let the wave of your training and dedication carrier, carry you, excuse me, whether it carries you to the hospital or to the finish line has no bearing on your ability to shred life. <laughs> Practice is nothing without non-attachment. The two fuel each other so that the journey can become the destination, so that the fruits of our effort are no more important than the effort itself. This was just after, I think, your the, first Vipassana. And you can just, you can hear the degree to which I'm just writing out of a <laughs> self-help book. <laughs> I, well, I still love the fact that we still use the word shred to come out, <laughs> you know, doing well in any context. But, I, you know, it, it helped me at the time. And I think it still obviously like has a huge relevance in sport and life, right? This practice is the destination, again, to speak in, in cliches. And it, in sport, we have this concept of process over outcome, mm -hmm. right? Where, where we devote ourselves to the practice of daily training, then hopefully with the proper dedication and with a little bit of good luck, the outcome will be satisfactory. But if we focus on the outcome and say, I need to win this race and therefore potentially lose focus on the process component, mm -hmm. it everything loses meaning. And we put ourselves in a position where we're probably less likely to succeed, probably because we're less satisfied in the practice, yeah. right? So what does the concept of process over outcome mean practically in whatever, whether it's Vipassana, your daily meditation practice, or in life in general? Well, it's the, I mean, it's the ultimate contradiction and it's also the most existentially entangling thing. This is, this is the hardest question in, um, in sitting practice uh, and everything that goes around that is if I'm supposed to not care what becomes of my effort, why do I effort? Mm. That is the hardest question. Um, and I've been asked that question many times, and I've also asked teachers that question many times, and it's there isn't a really tidy, categorizable set of words that you can put together to answer the question because it's, I mean, you could go back to the, you do it because it's 
within your quote unquote authenticity. But the the ultimate understanding that is is there luring you, and I mean, even to say it like that is interesting, right? Because if you're looking f- to be lured towards an understanding, then you're not doing it to do it. You're doing it because you want to get closer to the understanding. So let's just acknowledge that. But in in route to that, there is this beautiful opportunity to find a switch that you can flip that moves away from laboriousness and towards enjoyment. And in terms of the simplicity of learning how to focus, which is essentially all meditation practices, is learning how to focus better. We have this uh, erroneous understanding that to focus requires energy. It takes a lot of effort. And that is true. But what is also true is that it provides the energy that it requires. So for me, fundamentally in that question of of prize versus process, when we think of process, we usually think of it as energetically taxing. Mm. It takes energy to to go through a process. And the, the cool thing to switch in that is to look instead at the fact that the process actually gives you energy, at least as much energy that it requires. And when you can find entertainment, if nothing else, in the self-supporting loop that is that, it makes it more interesting to to give yourself to a process without necessity for some prize to come out of it. Yeah, interesting. So it leads me to kind of want to talk about what I perceive as kind of like a roller coaster of emotion and of physical sensation in what we do. You know, I think obviously both ultramarathons and Vipassana meditations are, they exist on the extreme, right? Like, as we've talked about, they provide us with just these insanely intense experiences, just the incredible highs, things that you could never properly justify or explain in words. And also it puts you through just these incredible lows and moments where, yeah, you question whether or not you can get through it. And you mentioned, you know, people quitting during Vipassana and going home early because it's so difficult. But it seems to me that the whole purpose of Vipassana is to kind of get off that roller coaster, right? So can you give an example of a moment in which when you were on retreat where you were confronted with something incredibly difficult and sort of like how you dealt with it in in the moment to kind of get through it? Yeah, well, huh. Um, let me actually, again, zoom out just for a second because the, the, the thing that's interesting about that is, again, we almost want to go through the difficulty to get to the joy. And as you said, like part of the process is kind of getting away from that. Mm. And just to dovetail on like the previous question and how that relates to this question is the ultimate paradox in this is that enlightenment or nirvana is defined by being a place that has no craving, no desire. 
And what's interesting is that in order to want to get to enlightenment, you have to want to desire it. Like you don't start meditating. You don't start going on really intense, long retreats without some desire for something to happen mm -hmm. out of it. But there, there has to then come this change where you understand, and I'm very far away from this, of course, let's be honest, but the understanding is that if you're craving for it to happen, it's not going to happen. Mm. And so when you're in, in moments of suffering, sitting in a dark closet by yourself for hours on end, you have to become aware of your desire to get out of it for a specific gain, for a specific purpose. And maybe I'm trying to balk and like giving you a distinct personal example of that happening, but it's very true in the sense that if you actually just zoom out and observe yourself toiling, you can actually like find a sense of humor about it mm -hmm. and, and just like let yourself toil knowing that it's a storm that's going to pass. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess I'll give you, I'll give you just one of the most intense and crippling moments of difficulty on retreat was my first year. Um, and I remember it still quite vividly. It was on the eighth day. So this is, you know, you're pretty lit mm -hmm. <laughs> by, by that time. Um, and it was in the afternoon of the eighth day. And by that time, you're very mentally sharp. You're, you're in it. You're, you have acclimated to the thing. You're in the middle of it. You're practicing. You're there. Um, and I just out of nowhere had this, what I thought to be a moment of clairvoyance that my girlfriend at the time was, had died. And I happened to have been in a state that was so ecstatic before that thought came that I was convinced that I had received a telepathic message that my girlfriend had died. And what was incredible ecstasy immediately transformed into the most crippling full body terror I've ever experienced. And this is a bad example because it's too hyperbolic, but I didn't know what to do. Yeah. And I, I ran, I literally stood up and I couldn't deal with it. I felt like I was going to have a panic attack. Wow. And went out and, you know, I actually remember I took a shower to try to like clean it off of me, but I was mm -hmm. still convinced. And then for the rest of the day, when I went back, every time I heard footsteps, I was convinced it was someone coming to tell me the news. Jeez. And I eventually went to the teacher and he said, in a way that was very compassionate and also just very simply, it was like, you know, you're in it. It's not real. Yeah. Um, and what I came to realize about that moment via the practice is that what had really happened is that I had stirred up a deep seated fear, uh. which was the fear of loss uh. and the fear of being alone and the fear of not being able to say goodbye to someone that I loved, mm. which are of course universal fears that we all have. And because I had been churning through my subconscious at that point for seven and a half days, I unloosed this fear mm. and that fear manifested in this actual hallucinatory neuroses, 
um, that was this thing has happened. Mm. And the teacher said, you know, next time that happens, just observe it as a sensation. And at the time that felt like quite a cop out. It was like, you know, give me something that I can actually do. But now 10 years later from that, I still use that instruction every single year on most days. And that is when a wave of anxiety comes, whether it's over the fear of loss or any of the other number of fears that I have deeply wound inside of my subconscious, you can in fact observe those waves of anxiety as sensation uh -huh. and in so doing recognize that they are not permanent and in so doing recognize that they are in fact separate from sense of self. So the, it, I also, I wanna just add one more thing to that. Most of it is quite mundane. Yeah, There are these moments of, of storms as mm. we call them where you're just kind of being thrashed around but a lot of it is just mundane thinking mm. about the stupidest things that have no continuity and no seeming thread of cause and effect. And when you do get leveled with moments of difficulty or regret, um, it is difficult, but the more you practice, the better you are at being equanimous through those moments. Yeah. So do you think that experience, as painful as it was in the moment, potentially helped remove that or at least to help you process and recognize that fear of loss in your daily life. Like yeah. it sounds again, going back to this analogy of brain surgery that you were eight days in searching your subconscious and your subconscious finally hit something that then rose to the surface. Yeah. And when, when that thing rises to the surface, then are you more able to then recognize it and process it practically in your daily life outside of retreat experience? Yeah, so this is gonna be the hardest thing for me to um, answer with clarity and intelligence because I'm certainly no Vipassana teacher and other people will be way better equipped to do so. But the idea is this, whenever you experience anything, you're experiencing it as a sensation. Whenever you react to anything, you're experiencing it as a sensation. Any experience, any words of praise or any words of ridicule, um, any promotion, any relationship ending, everything that you experience is experienced as a sensation, including things that you see, things that you hear, things that you taste. What you're actually relating to is a sensation that is created in your physical body that becomes of that experience. Mm -hmm. So in the practice of Vipassana, you put all of your attention onto the realm of sensation. And the reason why you do that is because your subconscious mind is all the time, 100% of the time, including when you're asleep, reacting to sensation. That's why you shift around in bed mm. when you're not conscious. It's because there's a sensation, your subconscious reacts to the sensation, which makes you flip over to the other mm. side. It's also the thing that makes you reach for your phone when you have a sad thought or you feel lonely. Mm. You're not doing it because you're thinking about it, you're doing it because you're reacting to a sensation that exists in your body. Oh. So, and again, like I, I hope that made any sort of sense just now, but yeah. the, the implication of that is that you're working not on your intellect, you're working on reprogramming the way that your subconscious mind craves things and averts itself to, to things. Mm. And this is why they say that the practice should immediately without any delay provide fruit 
in your normal day-to-day life. Mm. And it's because you're not reading about it, you're not hearing someone else talk about it, you're not intellectualizing it, you're actually practicing it. So that when a sad thought comes, you don't flail. Mm. You don't have a phone to reach towards. Mm. You don't have a TV to turn on, you don't have a refrigerator to open. You just have to sit there and be like, okay, sad thought. And see that that thought is accompanied by an entirely unique pattern of sensations in the body that then you can observe the sensation, hopefully with a glimmer of, again, equanimity. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, what you come to see is that the objects of sadness and the objects of loneliness are actually kind of comical. Um, but when we when we don't face them as sensations, which is like what we do all day, every day, mm-hmm. when we are completely surrounded by distractions of all sorts, um, what happens when you don't have distractions is that you just sit with them and they and they become entertaining in a sense. Um, they're just a little bit more removed from your sense of self. When when you don't face them, th- this is what creates this kind of objectless fear that I have experienced and still do experience, I think everybody experiences, of just this underlying angst mm-hmm. that is sometimes very mild and sometimes pronounced. And it's 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 the objects of sadness and the objects of loneliness underneath the surface as sensations that make you feel fatigued Mm -hmm. and that make you feel afraid and that make you just feel overall ill at ease. Um, So it's the craving of things that we don't have or the aversion to things that we are experiencing that we're hopefully becoming more aware of with right. this practice. Well, yeah, and it goes both ways. So the, the presence of an object of aversion or the absence of an object right. of attachment. Mm. And and um, what you what you come to see very quickly, well, not very quickly, it took me like <laughs> eight years, but one of the, the most important kind of way stations is learning that there's no one to provide what you feel you're lacking. Yeah. And there's no one that can take away what you don't want. And when, again, you can flip those things into, it's so hard to describe, but you, what you learn to do is not fixate on the object that you want or the object that you don't want, but you learn to relate to your sensations because of the presence or the absence of those things. Mm-hmm. Your reaction to those sensations is entirely under your control. Yeah. The presence or the absence of those things is entirely outside of your control. Mm. Beautiful. So I want to talk about more like practical application in life. And because virtually everybody who's going to listen to this is going to be an athlete of some kind, I'd like to talk about our internal life in ways in which athletes already naturally think. And I went and did a talk in Vancouver a couple of months ago where one of the main points or the main takeaways as a result of, again, my experience of just having a really hard year was this concept of developing and nurturing emotional fitness. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's, it helps, it sort of like was a light bulb moment, right? When you put it in the context of fitness, again, it's how an athlete thinks. And we're all so familiar with this idea of physical fitness and we know what it takes to develop physical fitness for 
the purposes of ultimately accomplishing some athletic goal. But nurturing this concept of being emotionally fit at the same time takes practice, mm -hmm. right? Just like the physical fitness takes training, the emotional fitness For sure. takes training. You just came off retreat a month ago, as you said. What is your emotional fitness practice look like now? Yeah, yeah, great. The the first thing though, of course, I, it seems like every time you ask a question, I have to zoom out first. Yeah. The, the, um, I would almost say it's not as much emotional fitness as it is just mental fitness. And there's a difference there, but the, the, the implication, the, the truth is that everything in the world is preceded by the mind. Mm -hmm. The only way that anything is what it is is because it has a label that is given by the mind. It's how we're having a conversation. It's how people are listening to this conversation. It's how we do everything. It's through the lens of the mind. So the mind literally precedes everything, which means the quality of your life is the quality of your mind. If your mind is agitated, then the whole world is known to you as various forms of agitation. Mm. If your mind is quiet and peaceful, the whole world is known to you as various forms of quietude and peace. So developing the lens of your mind to be more clear is directly related to your mental fitness, which then leads towards your emotional fitness and your physical fitness, mm -hmm. because the mind precedes all of that. Now, to answer your question by zooming in, the, the, the practice is, for me, catching myself when I feel like I have needs. And it's really difficult. Um, but that's, it's one of actually the most immediate and also foreign feelings when getting immediately back from a retreat is just having zero needs. Mm. You're used to like, oh, you know, like I need to get a cup of coffee or I need to do my emails or I need to call my mom or I need to do this. I need like we we constantly have this internal list of needs that we need to see to. And pretty much every time I get back from retreat, I don't have it any needs. Wow. And it's weird because you almost don't know what to do with yourself. So you just, you're just kind of, you're good yeah. and you don't need anything. Wow. And this is the, this is for me and my, again, very elementary understanding what I think about when I think about happiness, sustainable happiness. Um, and that is having fewer boxes to check off wow. in order to find happiness. And, you know, having done this again for 10 years, what I, I do notice that every time I do it, that feeling of needlessness lasts for longer. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it lasts like a week. Um, sometimes it lasts six months. And I'm very committed and motivated to catch myself in those moments where like, I need this. Mm -hmm. And at least recognizing that I'm doing it if I'm unable to stop doing it mm. to be like, okay, maybe you do have a need and it's like to go take a nap mm. and then maybe it'll be a little bit easier to be around. Mm -hmm. Well, it leads perfectly into something that we mentioned earlier that I wanted to get back to. And that is people's relationship with intoxicants. Yeah. And you and I have been fortunate to have great lives and um, 
a close brotherhood and we have partied a lot both together <laughs> and independently. This is really going to out me. And, but I think it's relevant because a lot of the times when people feel needs that are unsatisfied, they reach for things like drugs and alcohol. And I think we're both sort of coming to a point in our lives where we're sort of over it, right? Where the, the consequences of drinking are no longer really worth it or they're counterproductive to what we're ultimately trying to achieve in life. And you and I were talking last night about, you know, Harmony and I are doing dry January as we do pretty much every year. You've basically been off the sauce for a while now. And you said some really interesting things that I sort of just want you to kind of riff on again, just about how, what your relationship is with things like alcohol, cannabis, even caffeine, and how you think they impact your internal life. Yeah. Uh, well, I think it, it's also interesting to just be honest about the fact that the thing that makes you desire an experience like running 100 miles is the same thing that makes you desire experience like sitting still for 10 days is also the same thing that makes you want to be like, huh, what happens to my cognition when I smoke weed? What is it like to experience reality on alcohol? What is it like to take LSD? What are the yeah. different ways that I can actually experience the world? And I think it's it's important to just recognize that that need not be vilified. And there right. is a, there's a great exploratory sense in in using intoxicants to, to see what's what. Yeah. And in, in some way, I think it's actually a very valid argument to under to recognize that you can't really know yourself or your mind until you've seen it in as many different contexts as possible. Mm. But eventually, you know, the old adage is, is soon, if you get the message, hang up the phone. Mm. Um, so yeah, I have a long history of, of recklessness <laughs> and I, and I have very few regrets about that because I've learned a lot. Um, I've made some great connections via recklessness. I've made cool shit yeah. due to recklessness. Yeah. Um, and it, and it's, it's been a very valuable part of my life. And even so, like I've always ever since I started this 10 years ago, I've always done long stints of sobriety, like yeah. a month or three months or six months or whatever, yeah. just to see what that's like. But I've also I've also come to understand that it's possible to use sobriety in a controlling way, mm -hmm. just like you use alcohol in a controlling way. So that's an, another interesting thing for me to keep in mind right now, because I really am um, more and more committed to sobriety and there's a few things that come to mind. I mean, it's it's essentially assumed that in the Vipassana practice, you're not, if you're not getting closer and closer to total sobriety, you're not practicing properly. Mm. And that's always felt a little bit threatening to me as a person that likes to, you know. Be social. Get loose at a wedding. Right. At the very least. But a few things that come to mind. The first is my number one motivation to be clean is totally for my sitting practice mm -hmm. because I can tell immediately if I sit an hour in the morning and an hour in an evening every day, which I do almost every day. Yeah. Historically, I can tell right away if I've had any alcohol or any weed 
that my practice is way yeah. less sharp. It totally skews. And the reason why is that the, the level of focus that we're trying to maintain with continuity is so difficult and the subtlety is so delicate that when you introduce any intoxicant into your system, it's essentially like just throwing a huge boulder into a pond that you're trying to still. Mm. And I very much recognize the sabotage that mm. is in that. And I also know that the rewards of that boulder are true, but they're not nearly as pronounced as the rewards of the stillness. Mm. The second thing that comes to mind is that there's this this change that happens in your mind and your in your mental circuitry that skews your ability to delay gratification when you have a normal regular relationship with intoxicants um, because the, with with booze or with weed or with anything that feeling that you get the reward is instantaneous and requires zero effort and that teaches you to be averse to putting forth effort to get positive results and it it might be mild i think it is mild for most people but it's it's not negligible mm. and i find in myself for sure in general during weeks or months when i ha am enjoying excess more than others i'm more petulant i'm mm. harder to um it's harder for me to find contentment in small things because i don't want to delay gratification because i'm being taught by these intoxicants that i don't need to mm. and if i do this then i'll feel good right away mm. The third thing is that, as we just kind of talked about, is uh, the use of intoxicants is sensation seeking. Mm. And sensation seeking always takes you away from contentment for the reason that the reason why you want to have a beer or the reason why you want to get high is at its essence because you're craving a sensation that you're not currently experiencing whether that's the sensation of sociability or whether that's the sensation of relaxation or whether that's the sensation of like tripping out on a movie or mm -hmm. whatever. It's, it's the desire for a sensation that you're not current, currently mm -hmm. experiencing. And when that happens, you're essentially, again, training yourself to feel like something is always missing. Mm -hmm. And as we just said, happiness is the place where nothing is missing. And it's, it's for that reason that I, am more and more interested above the others of just seeing what it's like to be completely clean. Of mm -hmm. course, not like I'm not going to give up coffee. Right. Historically, <laughs> meditators are allowed to drink coffee and smoke cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's basically like AA. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I don't, I've never had a problem with, uh, well, you know, that's maybe arguable depending yeah. on who you ask, but I've never, I've never felt myself like super out of control with anything yeah. and everything that I've done has always been on purpose, even the, you know, benders of recklessness. Yeah. But I do find that the intoxicants just don't offer as much as they take away. Mm. And what about psychedelics? You know, this is now sort of in vogue again in sort of like... Well, it's been in vogue for as long as I can remember. <laughs> well, but it's more in vogue now, you know? Yeah. People are talking about decriminalization and there's now a lot of like active studies going on that I think have been going on, but certainly they're getting more attention now and more people are actually seeking them out as an alternative mm -hmm. to... Um, you know, some sort of medical intervention. Yeah. What What do you think about 
psychedelics as uh, you know it, what what's their value in that respect and how yeah well how let, you know let me step back and also like my opinions are my opinions yeah, okay um, that's for a good disclaimer um, <laughs> yeah I've I've done the micro dosing thing and gotten a lot out of it I've done a lot of macro dosing and gotten a lot out of it um, but for me again it comes back to the if you get the message, hang up the phone kind of thing. Uh, Whereas I, I learned through psychedelics that the mind is an incredibly powerful thing. Yeah. And what I can take away from that is that alcohol and marijuana put a big mute button on an incredibly powerful thing. So mm. in one sense, psychedelics have been very powerful for me in the sense that they've made me realize that intoxicants are no good as much as or more as maybe meditation has but i also think um you know who i guess who cares what i think in that yeah. sense like they're they are huge wide open doors yeah. to a, a realm of truth that is very hard to get at in other ways but i will say this i have experienced more transcendence and ecstasy seated cross-legged than I have on any psychedelic. And I don't want that to be seen as a sales point for meditation because of course you shouldn't be undertaking Seeking, meditation yeah. because you're gonna get as high as you do on acid. But I will say that there's something incredibly and wordlessly fulfilling about getting to that place of your own effort over days of extreme Toil discipline um, that is, will never happen with the ease of putting a drop on your tongue or whatever it is. Mm. And um, that doesn't take away the intensity and perhaps the benefit of doing it the quote unquote easy way. Mm. And maybe it's masochistic to think of it the other way, but there is something much more fulfilling and I think also something that comes with you much more Long -term sustainably yeah. when it's of your own effort. Mm. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, Jason, I appreciate you sitting down with me and um, sharing your dearth of knowledge. I appreciate you always being my spiritual advisor <laughs> in life and in sport. Yeah. For people who are interested in learning more about Vipassana and all the things that we talked about, are there books or websites or things that you would potentially recommend to those people? Oh, well, what we say is reading about book about meditation is like reading a book about how to swim. <laughs> so there's some stuff out there that you can read, but much more interesting is to just do it. Sure. The, the uh, website is dhamma.org, dhamma.org, and that's the worldwide Vipassana directory that has um, a schedule of courses all over the world. And that's um, that's where I longingly stare every couple <laughs> weeks thinking if I can clear 10 days off of my calendar to go sit. So yeah. that's that's the resource. Of course, there's so much stuff out there. And of course, you don't need 10 days to get into it. And I trust that the people that are interested in learning about meditation know where to seek resources. There's apps and teachers and local communities yeah. all over the place. But I do, with every piece of me, uh, recommend sitting for 10 days in, in the Vipassana practice because it is, to me, truly 
the most profound jewel and the greatest gift I could ever imagine receiving. And if I could inspire any one person to go check out that gift, well, I know that they will curse me for the first <laughs> nine and a half days at the end of it, they will and have invariably come back with words of gratitude. Well, after 10 years of you preaching the gospel to me, I promise at some point I will do it too. But yeah, maybe our father to did it too, which is I, worth yeah. mentioning. A, yeah. Why don't you give Pops a, Pops a shout veteran. out? Yeah. yeah. Shout out to Jim Bowman. Yeah. Uh, funny anecdote from his experience was he intentionally tried to sit as close to the fire extinguisher as possible so that he could at lunch so that he could read the, uh, the literature warning notes or whatever on yeah, the side of the fire nothing extinguisher. to read so he figured that he might as well entertain himself with reading the literature on the fire hydrant yeah. in the dining hall oh well, it's a beautiful thing i mean you have <laughs> you haven't yet convinced me to go though I, I it's not for uh lack of a desire to to do it in fact it's something that i really really would love to do. Um, but you have, I think, convinced a lot of people in our family and in our social circles to explore this with good results. So yeah, it's hard for me to not be an evangelist about yeah. it. And I, I do it out of well, it's similar with me in ultra running. It's joy. like if somebody yeah. asks me if they should run a hundred miler, I say, do it at some point in your life. There's, <laughs> it's an amazing thing. Yeah. It's just, I do also want to just reiterate that it, the, it is an approachable experience. And every time I go, most of the people that are there for the first time have never meditated before in their mm -hmm. life and they just have a desire to see. Yeah. And we spend our, our entire life looking out into the world with our eyes and we spend essentially zero time looking behind the eyes to mm. see what it is that's doing the looking. Mm. And I think it's a, a valiant thing to do and it's not outside of anyone's capacity to do so. Don't be intimidated. Beautiful. By the hyperbole of everything that's just been said. Well done. J-Bo. D-Bo. You crushed it. God bless you. I love you, bro. God Thanks bless for America. Thanks for coming to visit. Yeah. Vipassana 2020. 2020. Love you. Love you. Cool. Thanks so much for sticking around, guys. Really appreciate your attention. Thanks to Jason for taking the time to chat with us. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. If you're interested in learning more about Jason, you can check him out on Instagram at underscore Jason Bowman or at his website, which is jasonbowmanyoga.com. He's got a blog there that he updates regularly with lots of interesting and inspiring tidbits. But yeah, we appreciate you guys taking a time out of your day to listen to us rap for a little while. I hope it brought you some value and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks so much. <laughs>